this morning we we are doing we're looking at identity politics, and during this week we did that in community groups and small groups. And um, from what I what I've heard, some of the groups were controversial. Um, not not controversial, but it, I think endemic of this subject that when you start talking about identity politics, you start feeling some tensions in in different spaces as you begin to talk about different things. Um, so we're looking at it this morning. And I, I think it's going to be a pretty high flyover. We're not going to get into anything really deep specifically, so you don't have to worry. We're not going to name uh, any groups that should be dismantled. Um, we're really just going to look at it from a Christ-centered view. So for those of you who, who like me, just don't run around town talking about identity politics too much as a phrase, just to quickly kind of package it, what we're meaning here is over here on this Sunday morning from this stage, what I'm meaning is uh, letting something other than Jesus define your identity. Um, so it does have, you know, the word politics added to it. So that does have some sense of uh, you, you are looking for our government and that to be part of the solution or policies and things like that too, changing, having systemic change and that. But, but really what I want to kind of button down is that uh, at the end of the day, there is something that identifies me more than Jesus does. Uh, so all of us can have identities that are more meaningful to us at times than Jesus or in a moment. Because anyone of you who's a Christian may go, yeah, maybe that used to be me, but not me. We are prone, even as Christians, today you might be prone to think of yourself in a way uh, more than who you are in Christ, if that makes sense. Um, so we can all kind of uh, slip up into this a bit. Um, so don't think about the, all the, the obvious ones, which are quite loud. Usually they are around race and gender and sexual orientation. Um, that's how we, we kind of categorize them often. Um, but it can also be anything um, and any kind of societal uh, category. So you, 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 you have vegans... Um, who have who made themselves quite uh, well-known in our city recently. Um, you, you can divide over socioeconomic reasons. Um, I think in our city, occupation is a big one. Uh, I think as well, maybe in our city, a strange one, hobby. A hobby may be something that uh, divides people. Um, I feel like I would... Those of you who don't know me, I feel like it would be important to know whether I'm a camper or not a camper. Um, that's an important thing to know, right? We could divide this room on campers and non-campers. On campers, are you a camper or a glamper? Can we just, can you go to your quarter? Um, so what I want to do this morning is look at three things. <clears throat> One, founding Jesus. Two, dangers of identity politics. And three, principles for fruitful engagement. Right? The number one image bearers. And I really want to think about 20, verse 26, 27, 28, 29. Uh, For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Uh, different versions change that for us to say, you know, you are the children of God through faith. For as many of you who, as we're baptized into Christ, have put on Christ, therefore there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, there is no male or female. For you are all one in Christ. If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So 
very rich text, but it's a text all about our identity found in Christ, who we are found in Christ. And so what I want to just show us quickly is when you look at the Bible historically, we are at a point in history, the Bible tells us about the history of humanity. The Bible is Scripture. If you don't know much about the Bible, what the Bible is telling us is God's story with human beings. From the very beginning when we were created to when Jesus will return and He will take us into a new heaven and a new earth and everything in between. And we kind of need to locate ourselves so we can understand what the story is like and what's worth fighting for and how should we fight for things or what should we get behind. Because, you know, if you don't know your place in the story or the arc of the story, you don't really know whether you're up against it, whether you're winning, whether you're losing, right? So we start, most of you will know, we start in the, in the garden and the first thing we understand about identity is found in Genesis 1.27 where it says God made us in His image. So the first thing we find out about humanity is that we are image bearers of God. That's the first thing we know, right? Why is that a good thing? Because God is good. We created in the image of God. Therefore, every single person has dignity. Right, right from the beginning, before they've done anything, before they look a certain way, uh, before anything's been achieved, before uh, they learn anything, before they earn anything, they have dignity. Every single person has dignity. So quickly, just whoever you are, and I, and I know there's just a variety of different people here, everyone has dignity. That's a good thing. It doesn't just stop there, though. Just a little bit later... A few verses later, uh, scriptures say God looks at all that is made, including uh, mainly humanity, and He says it's very good. So not only are we given dignity, but we actually are looked at, inspected, observed, and there's joy found in us. God goes, ah, very good. I like what I've made. Now, uh, sometimes in our language... Um, we get good a little bit confused. So like we have good, better, best, right? So good is like a very low bar. How was Dylan? Yeah, it was good. I've had better. Definitely wasn't the best. So it actually makes dinner not sound very good at all, right? So God, you know, they're very good. Could have done better. Definitely didn't do my best work. (laughs) You see that? But actually in Scripture, good is like the highest compliment you can get. There's nothing better than good. Not, Not because, you know, God set a limit, because good in its very essence is, is good, is only good. It's inwardly good. It's outwardly good. It's only able to, uh, for goodness. It's pure. It's lovely. So if our English language was correct, we would say, better, best, good. How was dinner? It was good. No ways. It couldn't be that good. It means everything about it was good. It was nutritionally good. Its texture was good. Its flavor was good. Part of this performance enhancing surgery that I've had means I can't taste anything. (laughs) So my wife makes amazing food, but now I'm judging it on texture. It all tastes the same. And it doesn't even taste like vanilla or something good. It just tastes like nothing, like air. The air, well, I don't, yeah, it's terrible. You can't smell anything. That's a positive. Can't taste anything. That's a negative. But good means that it's everything about it is good. Is your relationship with your family good? That means not can you be in the same room together. It means are you respecting each other? Do you care for each other? Are you in contact with each other? Do you look out for each other? 
do you love one another? You know, it's like it's intrinsic, it's layered, it's deep, it's wide, it's high. And so God says they're very good. God loves what He made. And then there's this interesting scripture. I've never actually, I don't think I've ever heard a a sermon on this, but certainly as a parent I've felt this. And maybe that's more reflection of my sin. Certainly it wasn't of God's. But later on in Genesis 6, God regrets making humanity. Sometimes when it's tough being a parent, you go like, what have I done? (laughs) There's, There's no reverse. There's no, let's do this again. Maybe we'll, you know, there's, there's a... <laughs> let's move on. It's not in the notes. Keep on. It says in Genesis 6, he, God looks at, at uh, the sin of man. Man has rejected God. He's turned away from God. He's tried to be God. He's finding, uh, humanity's finding identity in everything else. They're trying to replace God in every single way they can which is not, not dissimilar to our culture, our own hearts. We try to identify in every single way we can. How can we get God out of our finances? We can have financial security. How can we get God out of our, our sense of, of uh, worthiness? We can get approval from others. How can we get God uh, out of this? Out of the, you know, I just need power. I need influence. I need pleasure. I need, and, we, and, and so God looks at this, and He's got humanity that's rampant with sin. They've rejected God. They're trying to replace Him in every which way they can. And God is distur- says God's disturbed in His heart, and He regrets making humanity. And so... Uh, you know, if you're a parent and you've ever felt like that, then... You can say, God, I know you know what I mean, what I feel. Help me, because he doesn't stop there. So anyone ever felt like, you know, if, if things are so bad, how come God has, doesn't just end it? Why doesn't God just like wrap this up? Because there's another part of, of the goodness of God. And that's, as the story goes, God promises a redemption. God plans a redemption for humanity. He's burdened, he's broken, just the same as a, a, a parent, even in their weakness, even sinful parents. You know, we've come to the end of ourselves. Oh my gosh, what more can we do with this child? They're so stubborn, they're not getting it. You know what you don't do? I do this jokingly, so let's just be honest. I have done this jokingly. Opened the front door and said to one of my children, you clearly don't want to live here. Please feel free to go where you clearly want to go. You're not leaving? Okay. Door closed. Now, this is how we do things around here. But that doesn't change the heart. It might change the behavior, but it doesn't change the heart. And, and so you just keep praying. You keep chipping away. You keep having conversations. Even broken, flawed parents can do that. How much more this eternal, wonderful, all, always and only good God? He promises redemption for humanity. And he promises that this will come through Jesus. And so he prophesies it through Israel's history. Um, and Jesus comes and he proclaims that the kingdom of God has come to man. A new era in history has begun. So Jesus comes and he says, there's a new day. So some theologians break it up covenantally that there's the old and the new. Some break it up in dispensations. And I think there's 14 or something like that. If you're a dispensationalist, you don't, you don't even need to know what you are. It doesn't matter. Don't worry about it. But there's these eras of history. What everyone will agree with is that we are at a, t- at a time in history where God's grace has been manifest through faith in Jesus Christ. That's where we're at. We're not in the time of promise where we're waiting for salvation. 
And we're not yet at the time of all things being restored and redeemed. We are waiting for that. But we're somewhere in between the resurrection of Jesus, where new life has been offered, where the Holy Spirit comes and begins to transform our hearts, and where Jesus returns and restores uh, all things as they should be. We're somewhere in between. So things aren't as perfect as they should be, but they're also not as bad as they could be. We can live with hope in our hearts. We can go out every day with faith that God's going to do things in our city. We can expect as sin is revealed in our hearts to be transformed more into the image of Jesus. We can bring ourselves before God. Uh, We can expect His Holy Spirit to work in our lives because the new life of God has come and Jesus is still returning. And that's where we get put in, in kind of this moment in history. That's the, whether it's called the church era or the era of grace or whatever you want to call it, that's where we're at at the moment. And it's exciting to be here. And so everyone who's put their faith in Jesus is taken off everything else. You know, my kids, I think they think it's funny that, that, uh, that their dad's a redhead. I know they think it's funny that their dad's a redhead. I, I don't know why they haven't thought that they carry the gene and their kids could be redheads. <laughs> but God will get them. <laughs> and they like asking me things like, you know, when they see a redhead, we, we, and our, our apartment looks over a field and you can watch footy if you want, and they'll see a redhead running around and they'll be like, hey, do you know that person? What's their name? <laughs> As if all redheads know one another. And, and we'll go along with it. Or, um, you know, we've got a history in South Africa, a history in America, and, oh, this person's from South Africa. Do you know them? Or this person's from that part of America. You know, it's like you identify each other and you try and like, oh, you're this, oh, you're that. Oh, you're, or, or Josh identified, I don't know if you picked up on it in his announcement, he, he identified as a mother yes. this morning. And he didn't get called out on it, so I'm just going to call him out on it. <laughs> How he spoke of, you know, when you've got a young baby and it's so nice to go to a play group, you just need to get out the house. And <laughs> Josh has never been a stay-at-home mom for a day in his life. <laughs> These to him are just rumors he's overheard. (laughs) But he's trying to identify into a group of people he has no right being part of. But we do this constantly. We see ourselves and we see one another through identities and we place identities on each other. When COVID came around, we did it again. Society divided on vaccinated and unvaccinated. And we constantly do this to one another and to ourselves. But as we come to Jesus Christ, He takes all of that off. All those identities are put aside. And the identity that's given us is you are a new creation in Christ, a child of God, adopted into His family. You are heirs according to the promise to Abraham. That's your identity. Who are you? Before anything, we can't go around doing this because it would, uh, it would confuse people in society. It would, it would give Christianity a bad name. Who are you? I'm a child of God. Then that person's probably less likely to want to go to church with you. I get it. I get you can't speak like that, but you can think like that. You can know that that's true. You can walk around every day at work and on the street and in your neighborhood going, I know that before I'm anything else, I'm a child of God. And as I look at this person, or whether they are Christians or not, I know that they are made in the image of God. What we share together, regardless of how similar we are, what we believe, we share the dignity of being image bearers of God. And then, if they're Christians too, we share so much more. 
we share every ultimate thing. So Christians, more than any people, should see that all people are image bearers of God. It's true that in Christian history, this hasn't always been the case. And that Christians have been propagators of injustice. It's absolutely true. But it's not right. So just because Christians did things, doesn't mean it was the Christian thing to do. Right? And so it's okay to acknowledge that in our history, there's incredible injustice and mountains of unmercy. But never was it right. And never was it as it ought to have been. And never was it as God has made us or called us to live. So that's our identity in Christ. The dangers, the dangers of identity politics. Um, as I said, it's real in our society, and at some stage you may find yourself getting involved or advocating for, for some group. Um, I remember growing up, as, uh, growing up as a white child in a divided South Africa during apartheid. I, I didn't really know what was going on because our church was full of all kinds of people. Uh, our, my parents put me in a school that had all kinds of people. And our home had all kinds of people, and there was no language about apartheid. So I didn't know that apartheid was a thing growing up. I didn't see the separation. Apartheid is a word that means separation. I didn't see the separation because in all the places I went, we, we had a togetherness. But at times, we would go walk, march on the streets, waving banners and flags. I didn't really understand why we were doing that, but it was fun to be out with people. It was fun to be at stadium prayer meetings. It was fun to be um, going into different communities where people live very differently to you, the poorest of poor, and talking about Jesus and eating foods with, with them. It, it, I, it, I didn't really know what was going on, but it was fun and enjoyable. But the spirit of advocacy for against that injustice was one of faith in Jesus. It was one of putting Christ first. From my experience of it, I'm sure there were lots of different ways that people came at it, but the, the angle that my parents led us into it was, as Christians who put Christ first, we need to cry out for our brothers and sisters of all kinds. And so as Christians, you might find yourself needing and wanting to advocate for a group of people. But there are some dangers we, I just want to look at over here. Um, and I think I'm just going to name a handful of them. Number one is the issue of sin. As Christians, and when we look at the Bible, the Bible teaches us that uh, every individual is responsible for their behaviors, their actions, their thoughts, their sin. That every single one of us, Paul says, none of us are pursuing God, not one of us are pursuing God. Uh, Paul says the wages of sin is death. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So none of us find ourselves in a good position in regards to sin. And the Scriptures tells us that we are all accountable and responsible for that. Hence, the new, good news of Jesus is that He has died in our place, right? That's what we believe. But in identity politics, the sin is usually uh, blaming or casting blame on another group of people. We are normally the innocents who blame the guilty. You cast off any personal sin and cast onto a group or a, uh, a nation or a system 
the fault, the sin. And that can be quite unhelpful. That's not good news. So the sins of others are seen as the problem to be addressed. And it's likely that the sins of others need to be addressed. But what can be forgotten is the sins, the ultimate, ultimately I still have to stand before God as an individual who needs redemption through the good news of Jesus. And if I find myself in some uh, group of people that has encountered injustice, that's not going to save me from my personal sins. I still need Jesus. Number two, salvation. So the Bible teaches that the ultimate salvation comes from God through faith in Jesus alone. Right? We know this. Those of you who are Christians, this is like, this is like whatever comes 101. Ephesians 2, by, you know, this salvation through faith alone, in Christ alone, through grace alone, because of God's love and mercy poured out on us. But with, as I've said, with identity politics, it's not looking at that. And so it's looking at salvation comes through, uh, often comes through government or uh, uh, reform in policies. And so you're trying to change the system to save us. And forgetting that ultimately our salvation doesn't come through changed policies. But the first thing that has to happen is we need redemption, right relationship with God. Our problem isn't first with our brothers and sisters. Our problem is first with God Almighty. That needs to be corrected through His grace and mercy found in Jesus Christ. When that's corrected, we can get to work on other things. When Paul talks about there's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, often even Christians get it wrong to say that what that's suggesting is that none of those distinctives... uh, matter anymore, that they're no longer present, that people are now androgynous, uh, that there's no soci- you know, socioeconomic reality of slave and free, rich and poor. And that's not at all what Paul is saying. He's not saying that what Jesus does is wipes away distinctives and makes everything neutral. Heaven is going to be, and by heaven I mean the new earth, when Jesus returns, all nations, all tribes, all tongues. It's not going to be like a primary school playground where everything has to be fair all the time, but everything will be good all the time. But we won't be the same. We won't have the same languages. We won't have the same looks. We won't have the same gender. We won't have the same... The distinctives remain. Paul's not getting rid of distinctions that in Christ you are no longer distinct. Paul is saying that in Christ you are no longer divided. If your distinction has divided you, Christ has united you. He unites all people, so you no longer divide as Jew and Gentile. You you now unite as Jew and Gentile in Christ. You no longer divide as a male or female with different genders. and You now unite as male and female again in Christ. You no longer divide as slave and free. You know, the rich go to where rich go and the poor go to where poor go. You unite the rich and the poor together in Jesus Christ. And we see this. We see the church of Jesus Christ gathering all sorts of people that couldn't be together in society are together in the church of Jesus Christ because they're united there. So Paul can write about Philemon who ran away from his owner but then gets saved. Paul can send Philemon back and say, Receive, sorry, Onesimus. I'm I'm messing up my slaves. 
He sends back Onesimus and says, receive our brother. He doesn't wipe anything away. He doesn't change who Onesimus is, but he changes the reality of his position in relationship. Uh, and, and, he, and in Christ, he's given a dignity which he didn't have before. You can go read it. It's like one page in the Bible. Beautiful story. So, so Christ doesn't separate, uh, Christ doesn't make us everything androgynous or, or neutral, vanilla, meaningless. Everything's the same. He unites the distinctives. In, if anything, the distinctives become more distinct, but together. You understand? Like two puzzle pieces. It doesn't become like Jesus doesn't make the puzzle piece that it's this way and this way, and these shapes go, back, go nicely together. Jesus doesn't make everything just nice squares that can just sit next to each other. No, you, you stay distinct. You become distinct. You are distinct. Otherwise, imagine how boring the new heaven and earth would be if everyone's like you. Oh, sorry, that's rude. Uh, imagine how boring heaven would be if everyone's like me. How, I mean, well, what, what would you talk about? You already know the answer to everything. What experiences would you share? You've already had them all. The distinctions, the distinctives of our cultures around the world, of our languages, of our foods, of our experiences are meaningful and wonderful and rich. And Christ brings those together in unity. He doesn't erase them. What identity politics does is uses them to divide groups of people against one another. All right, let's look at the next danger. Uh, that, that, that's the third one, unity. The fourth one, truth. So the Bible teaches us that ultimate truth can be found in the Scriptures, and it's determined by God, and we look to God for truth. We don't go make up our truth. We, we don't uh, look to anything else for truth. We, we look to God through the Scriptures to find truth. The Scriptures don't say everything about everything, and so we have some things that, you know, like truths about Christ, which are non-negotiable, there's other things that we can discuss, be open to. We don't know. But the Bible says a lot about a lot and gives us the truth by which we live, by which we organize a society, by which we organize relationships, by which we raise a family, by which we go to work. It talks about all the things that we really need to know about uh, how to live for the glory of God. And so we have truth given to us. But in identity politics, the truth that comes to us is ex my experience, my individual experience, the, or the experience of our group. And it's our truth. And no one can really speak into that. And so if you don't agree with it, you may be a bigot. Not because you are, but because you aren't in agreement with the truth of that group. Do, do you understand? You may be shocked to be like, how did I go from like nothing to a bigot? I'm not even sure I said anything, simply because you didn't agree with the truth of a group whose truth is formed from their experience and their, their own identity. That's a danger of identity politics, is we, we can lose truth. And the last one is Redemption. So the Bible teaches uh, redemption of the whole person by the Holy Spirit. This talks about uh, the transformation of the inner person. The Bible talks about a new heart that God's going to give us. 
um, a new way of thinking, believing the heart is like the center of the person. It's the way, you know, if you, if, it's the way you think. It's the way you believe. It's the way you feel. It's, it's how your worldview is shaped. It's everything about you at, the, at your very heart of hearts. And the, the, God promises that through the Holy Spirit, He puts a new heart into us. And many of you will find that as you've walked with Jesus, you feel or think or believe differently about things than, than you used to. Maybe you were a very angry person and you find that as you walk with Jesus, you are more gracious and patient. It surprises you. It's because He's giving you a new heart to see people and love people the way that He does. Maybe there was a kind of person you were impatient with or, or just looked down on. You thought you were superior to. But as you walk with Jesus, you find that you no longer look down to, upon them. Or maybe you overly respected some, some group of people. Maybe you thought the, the wealthy and educated were the kind of person you wanted to be. But as you walked with Jesus, you realize the wealthy and educated are as broken as any other one, other group of people. And it just dismantled. And Jesus promises this transformation by the Holy Spirit as He goes to work in our hearts that we become more and more like Jesus as we walk with Him, being transformed into the image of His likeness, Paul says, day by day. You and I are on our way to death. That's where we're going to end in this life if Jesus doesn't return. I don't feel bad saying that because you should all know it. Uh, some of us will get there with an immense amount of ease, and some of us will get there through great pain and suffering. But that's where we're going. Along the way, I can't think of anything more wonderful while we wait for Jesus to come back and to redeem all things. I can't imagine anything more wonderful than knowing that every single day there's a hope that in some way, great or small, from a, like one degree to the next, I can become more like Jesus today. In, in a lot of other ways, uh, you know, Nass was showing me gray, gray hairs this morning. Uh, you know, it's, and, that's, and then there's, we're going to have wrinkles and we, you know, blah, blah, blah. I don't need to tell you all the things. I will say that uh, what, when, my, when my children threaten me, they do threaten that they, they won't, if I don't do certain things or behave in certain ways, they won't be the child willing to change my diaper one day. <laughs> they, they give me a vivid reminder of where I'm going to end up if I'm lucky enough to live that long. But I am so grateful that between now and then, Every single day, I can expect as I walk with Jesus to become more like Him in some way, shape, or form. To see what He sees, to believe what He believes, to feel what He feels, to know the love of God, to know the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, to know the joy at looking at the people of God with His love in your heart. And there's many ways I can see I need, you know, lots and lots of change. But isn't the redemption in Jesus our greatest hope? You know, maybe when you're in high school, you thought your career was your greatest hope. I can't wait to be a. But that will never satisfy. That doesn't satisfy. But in identity politics, uh, redemption, as I said, is more seen in a sphere of kind of policy reform or culture shift. Um, 
it doesn't transform the individual. It transforms external things for the individual. But it doesn't change the individual's heart or, or uh, the individual's life inside and out. So three principles for fruitful engagement. As Christians, so it's four principles, but it's point number three. As Christians, number one, let's listen and seek to understand what people are talking about and the experiences that they share. Let's be great listeners, great acceptors of people's lives. You know, let me, say, let me remind you of this. If someone hasn't met Jesus, their experience is the biggest deal to them. Once someone has met Jesus, their experience can become secondary because they've met Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> You've got something else to talk about. But if they don't know Jesus, their experience is the biggest deal in their life. And if you have no interest in, no interest in hearing about it, they can, you can understand why they can feel that's quite unloving. And perhaps it is. And so let's be good listeners and understanders. To understand something, you have to ask questions. You know, some of us guys know exactly what it's like to be a stay-at-home mom. Others don't. Josh has obviously done his field research. He's obviously asked his questions. What's it like? What's it like to finally get out the house? What's it like to socialize with other people? What's it like to carry a baby in your human form and then raise it with your body and then go outside and meet with other people who've, who've gone through the same miraculous experience? He's so much so that he's able to talk from that position. <laughs> but I'm, I'm humorously trying to say, you know, there may be things that we disagree with, but to really understand what people are experiencing, we need to ask some questions. What is it like? When you go to the shops, what's that like for you? When you go to school, what's it like for you? When you get called that, what's it like for you? What's it like to be in this country? Number two, as Christians, we are called to speak the truth in love. And those two things have to be together. If you only try love and there's no truth, you're not really offering anything. If you only deliver the truth and there's no love, you're not offering you doing something quite harmful, actually, probably. But we have to offer the truth in love. That means not that we know we love the person, but that they know they are loved. I've made this mistake so many times in my life where people have been able to say to me, I don't feel loved. I've made that mistake in my marriage. I've told you about this many times, but I'll tell the visitors this time. My wife and I were in an argument. She's normally always right, not because she's proud, but because I'm proud and she's normally right. Um, and we were in an argument, and it was that one time where I was actually right. And I was so right that I had a Bible verse for it, and she didn't. And I, and I chose to show her the Bible verse that would prove how wrong she was. And it wasn't like a Bible verse like submit to your husband or something like that. It was like a, a proper Bible, Bible verse that spoke sp straight into the issue. And she looked up and she just said this. It may say that, but I don't feel loved. 
and you are called to love me. And I remember thinking, how can I be wrong even when I'm right? <laughs> and she was totally right. Because I gave her truth, but she didn't know that she was loved. And it's going to be hard because when people share things that are obviously wrong according to Scripture, according to truth, and we want to bring that to them, share it, it's going to demand immense amounts of clarity that we love them and accept them. You're going to need the Holy Spirit's help. God, how can I make sure that this person knows that they are loved? Does that mean I have to just pause and go away and pray for a day or two and say, look, are there some things I'd like to share? Can, can we just plan another coffee? And I need to actually go and pray and fast about this a little bit, think. Or, or does it, you know, whatever it may be. The person on the other side of the table needs to know that they are loved as we deliver truth. But they need the truth. Number three. Afterwards... Or, or just always, not that this is a chronological outworking, but always there needs to be an ongoing model of love and compassion. Our lives have to be extensions of God's grace and forgiveness. If we are just truth bearers who run around ready with our script to speak into the cultural identity politics idols, and we just have our scripts uh, and our scriptures and we're ready to go, that, that's one thing. That's okay. Be ready. Be ready to share and to engage. But if the rest of the time we aren't modeling compassion and mercy and love, we don't really have a message worth sharing. Remember how Jesus drew the very people that truth was speaking against. Jesus was calling out people sin, and yet sinners ran to him. Isn't that fascinating? The people who thought they were righteous without sin were repelled by Jesus. And the people who knew they were full of sin ran towards Him even though He was speaking against sin. There's something about the way He lived His life, something about the, the way that He carried Himself that was merciful and compassionate and loving even though He never negotiated on truth. Imagine if people in our city, where you work, where you live, they know you as a person of so much compassion, grace, and grace that they run to you for your perspective. What do you think about this? I know you're not like me. I know you're ch you go to church. But what do you think about this? Imagine if people in our city who are struggling with their identity, struggling with injustice, were to run to the Christians they know because they go, I don't know where else to turn with someone who, who will tell me what they believe, but who will show me love and compassion and grace. I've never felt more accepted than by you, even though I know you don't agree with how I live. Speak to me. Let's chat. What would Perth be like if the church had that reputation, the most accepting and loving people without ever negotiating what we believe is truth through Scripture? And lastly, and I've probably mentioned it a few times just through the first three, it just kind of goes through all of them, is we have to be courageous. It's so much easier to say nothing. It's so much easier to stay uninvolved. 
It's so much easier to go, I found Jesus, I don't need all this stuff. It's so much easier to look from the outside and say, yeah, just a lost world. Look where everyone is without Jesus. It's just broken. But we need to be courageous. God's put us in the city not to stand on the outside looking in. He's put us in the city to engage with people, uh, with their lives, with brokenness. It's much easier to engage in someone, with someone's life who knows that it's broken. Isn't that easy? <laughs> when someone comes, I do some counseling uh, through a course that I'm doing. It's so easy to counsel people who come to your office and sit down and they're paying you to tell you their problem. And then they say, what do you think I should do? So easy. It's much harder when the brokenness defines people and they're marching on with that truth and that identity. It's much harder. It takes much more courage to speak up to a friend or anyone where they go, you sound like a bigot or this or that. And yet as Christians, we're called to be courageous. Joshua said to, to God when, when he took over from Moses, God said, okay, time for you guys to go into the promised land. Uh, in other words, time to partner with what God is doing in your nation. And Joshua went, uh, yeah, okay, but do you promise that you'll be with us? You know, he's terrified. Do you promise, God, like you were with Moses, do you promise that you will be with us? And God said this to Joshua. He said, I'll be with you, but you have to be strong and courageous. In other words... God has been realistic with Joshua to say, Joshua, there's no ways you're going to do this by yourself. Don't be such a fool. Of course I'm going to be with you. But there's also, I'm not going to do this for you. You're going to have to go. You're going to have to trust. You're going to have to believe. You're going to have to engage. You're going to go into the promised land knowing I'm with you, knowing what I've promised, knowing what we're going to do. Yes, I'm going to do it. Yes, I'm going to be with you. But you be strong and courageous. In other words, look up. Look to me. Don't look at the giants of the land. Perth needs a church of courageous people who are willing to step out in our city, in our marketplace, in our neighborhoods with the truth and love of Jesus, who aren't afraid of labels. You know, what would cause us fear of labels is because we're still looking for our identity and acceptance of others. If my identity is in Jesus, what does it matter what I get called along the way? And so Perth needs Christians who are courageously, lovingly, compassionately bringing Jesus into our city, into our marketplace, into our schools, and taking corridor conversations. You know, not arriving uh, at, at 9 o'clock when work starts and saying, everyone, I just need five minutes. I'm going to tell you the truth you've always, wait, waited to, you've always been waiting for. Just waiting for the corridor uh, conversations. Praying, we can pray every morning, Lord, today, show me, show me what conversation you want to have. Show me who you want to reach. And be strong and courageous, partnering with God in defeating the giants of our city. And God is with us. Josh is going to take us into communion, which in its very essence over and over and over, Jesus says to us, do this in remembrance of me. You are not gathered as any other kind of group. You are not gathering as reformed charismatics. You are not gathering even as King's Cross. You are gathering 
as the people of God, unified from your diverse cultures in Jesus. Do this in remembrance of me. Do this to remember that your identity, who you are, is found in who I am. And I'm making you new, and I'm making a new people, a new nation on the earth. And we come and we remind ourselves of who we are. It doesn't matter, you know, what's great. It doesn't matter who you are. There is no person who comes to Jesus that has more dignity than someone else. And when you come to Jesus, the language you speak, your race, your bank account, your education, it all falls away. Not because it doesn't matter. You are you. You're distinct. God has made you. Because who you are in Christ is what unifies us. Let me pray, and then Josh will take us to communion.